and adore this great and awesome God who is truly exalted above all blessing and praise. Esther chapter 6, this is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire that our lives would line up with what your word says we ought to believe and that we ought to act. Father, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction where conviction is needed, encouragement where encouragement is needed, understanding where that is needed. But Father, I pray that as we continue to worship you, in our responses to this, your holy scriptures, that we may not only tremble before your word, but, Father, we would be filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Touch this, your people, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, during the past two days, we've been looking at uh, many different providential events at the History Festival, and some of those have been pretty exciting uh, events. But this morning, I want you to 
really be persuaded that you ought to think of God's providence in every detail of your lives, even the most boring details of your lives. One of the amazing things about the book of Esther is that God's name does not occur in it, uh, except in a hidden acrostic that Jews highlight in their manuscripts with bigger letters where you can see the name. But his name really does not uh, occur here, and yet God's hand is seen everywhere. I mean, you cannot but see the hand of God working behind the scenes. It can be seen in Esther's parents dying when she was a young girl, and Mordecai, at least on my chronology, having gone to Israel and just the right time, having adopted uh, Esther into his family. You can see it in uh, the actions of the queen. And uh, King Ahasuerus getting extremely upset with his queen, deposing her, and then later on regretting it, but not being able to do anything about it because of the way that their law structure uh, was designed. Uh, you can see it with the enemy Haman, whom God would use to bring discipline to his people, who had been in a backslidden state and be bringing that people back to him. I mean, this is an amazing thing. God is using the person who hates the Jews to be sanctifying and blessing these Jews spiritually. And so God uses even the wrath of Haman to praise him. He works through Haman's uh, pride and despite uh, his hatred for the Jews. You can see God's hand in the casting of the lot. You know, that's a symbol of chance, isn't it? Dice. And yet we know in the Scripture, the Proverbs tell us, that the, every casting of the lot is from the Lord. There is no such thing as chance. Uh, Haman probably thought he was casting lots to figure out which would be a lucky day that the gods would bless, you know, when he's trying to kill every Jew throughout the entire empire. But we see that God's hand is involved in the minutest details of this story to advance his purposes. This is an amazing, amazing book. And if you've never read the book of Esther, I strongly encourage you to do it. It's a suspense-filled book. It's just beautifully, beautifully written. So I really, I hate to jump right into the middle of a story like that, but that's exactly what we're going to uh, do this morning. And we're going to look at the providence of God in two sleepless men, King Ahasuerus and Haman. And it's my hope that as we look at these two cases of insomnia, that it will help you to see God's spectacular and even the most ordinary events in life. Now, God's hidden hand can be seen all throughout the book. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's just a fabulous book, and you can see it even in the way this book is structured. And if you look at the second page of your outline, uh, I've got uh, two uh, outlines that uh, are in there that show this uh, structure. It's called a, a chiastic uh, structure outline where the A, you see an A at the beginning and an A at the end of the outline. Well, that's at the beginning of the book, there's an A theme. At the end of the book, there's an A theme. They're parallel. And near the beginning of the book, there's a B theme that's parallel to the B theme at the end of the book. And we call this a achiasm. And uh, one of the things about this Hebrew uh, form of literature, whether it's just a small chiasm in the middle of a chapter or a chiasm throughout the book like here, is that the center of that chiasm really is the heart of that paragraph, or the heart, in this case, of the entire book. And so in the small outline, 
it's the two E points, and in the more extended outline, it's the two points that are labeled as a K. Now, you might not get excited over the structure of books like I do. Uh, I just love studying out those kinds of things. In fact, uh, when you look at the book of Revelation and the intricate cross-structures uh, of the, the structure of that book, uh, to me, it's an argument for the inspiration of that. I don't even know how uh, a human could construct that prior to the time of computers. It's just a marvelous outline. But anyway, uh, you might think, so what? Okay, it's an outline, uh, you know, big deal. But let me read you from a, a commentary. It's Job's commentary on Esther uh, that explains the so what of this. Commentary says, by making the pivot point of the peripety, and I should explain, a peripety is a, a sudden, unexpected, complete reversal of events. That's what a peripety is. So it says, by making the pivot point of the peripety an insignificant event rather than the point of highest dramatic tension, the author is taking the focus away from human action. Had the pivot point of the peripety been at the scene where Esther approaches the king uninvited or where Esther confronts Haman, the king and or Esther would have been spotlighted as the actual cause of the reversal. By separating the pivot point of the peripety in Esther from the point of highest dramatic tension, the characters of the story are not spotlighted as the cause of the reversal. This reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. And so the author is showing that even though a God appears to be silent in this book, he really is at the center of this story. The author of the book sees God's hand in everything. His silent providence plays the crucial role. Not men, not kingdoms. No, it is God at work, apparently behind the scenes, but he's in front of the scenes. He's throughout it all. He's part of the plan from beginning uh, to end. Uh, it is God's sovereignty that is an absolutely critical doctrine to understanding uh, providential history. Now, we're going to be seeing a little bit later on in the sermon that the cross of Christ is an absolutely critical point, and this figures into the structure of this book as well. But uh, I just wanted to point out, I was talking with uh, Marshall Foster last week, and uh, he told me this was one of the things that uh, was a big transition in his life. He used to be a part of the principal approach to uh, education, and he said there's a lot of great stuff in there. He, he loves a lot of what was uh, produced, but he says he start with the principle of individualism rather than starting with God. It starts with man. But really, you cannot understand history if you do not start with God, and then if you do not see God's plan through the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we've been trying to do in the Providential History uh, Festival. Now, if you were to write this book about Esther, I think the temptation might be for you uh, to make this mission impossible uh, where you turn Esther and Mordecai into Tom Cruise's who totally dominate the whole plot. But the writer of this book really doesn't do that. In fact, he leaves out so many significant questions we're dying to know. Well, there are a lot of things we don't know about these characters, and he's highlighting the fact that God is at the center of this story. He's working even through the most mundane events 
uh, of history. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, do you recognize God as being the center of your story? Do you recognize Him uh, in every area of your life? The best way of seeing God as truly being at the center of your life is not necessarily to have God's name upon your lips all the time, although, of course, we should have God's name upon our lips, right? And it's not necessarily even to be asking God for miracles. Now, I believe in miracles, but that's not the, the central thing. central thing is to see your life as being woven by God and God being in every detail of every part of your life, every minute of your life. The same author uh, said this, Any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that He can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish His eternal purposes and His ancient promises. And I think that is such a cool thought. This chiasm here shows it's God's providence that is the central theme of this book. Now let's take a look at the amazing scope of this providence just in this chapter. We're not going to look at the rest of the chapters. If you do, it'll just blow your mind. But just this chapter alone. While everyone but Haman and the king are sleeping, God is silently at work. And verses 1 through 3 show that God knows just how to touch people in a way that are going to advance His purposes. Let's begin at verse 1. Okay, that night the king could not sleep. Now literally it says in the Hebrew that the king's sleep fled away. And the idea is he was sound asleep and suddenly gets woken up and he cannot get back to sleep. Uh, he's uh, tossing and he's turning. One author uh, kind of humorously said that maybe it was the sawing and pounding of the hammers next door as Haman's constructing the gallows for, uh, uh, for Mordecai. I doubt that, uh, but we're really not uh, told why. Ultimately, who is the giver of sleep? Who is the taker away of sleep? It's God, right? And we have a tendency to ignore God in the mundane things of life like this. And yet it's a part of God's providence. Now certainly we have human responsibilities that we need to engage in and pursue, but always we need to be prayerful when we're engaging in those responsibilities. When you cannot uh, fall asleep at night, you need to be asking God, Lord, why is it you have me awake tonight? Is it because you want me to pray? Uh, is it because you want me to notice something? Maybe there's a burglar next door. I mean, why are you having me uh, be awake at this time of night? Now, certainly we can take our responsibilities like, you know, maybe taking calcium at night if that helps you to get to sleep a little bit better. But ultimately, we need to be praying to the Lord. We need to be seeing God as being a part of uh, this issue of being able to sleep or not being able to sleep. Scripture gives these kinds of statements. He gives His beloved sleep. That's Psalm 127, verse 2. Now, I'm a chronic insomniac, and that's a favorite Scripture of mine. <laughs> Lord, I'm willing to stay awake as long as You want me to stay awake. I'll keep praying as long as You want me to keep praying. But Lord... Thank you that you give your beloved sleep, and whenever you want to give that gift, I'm willing to receive it tonight. <laughs> That's a favorite scripture of mine. But uh, here is another scripture that shows that God is involved in th these issues of sleep. And the Lord God 
caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. That's Genesis 2, verse 21. Now, 1 Samuel 16 talks about David sneaking up on Saul's garrison, and it says, They were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So it's not just pre-fall Adam that God uh, brings sleep into his life, but God also can bring sleep into the lives of those who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. He can work in their lives, and he works in a believer's life like David because David says, I lay down and slept, I awoke for the Lord sustained me. He explains why it was in the face of overwhelming odds where it looked like it was a hopeless battle he was going into. He was able to go to bed, trust God, and uh, find sweet sleep because the Lord gave him that sleep. Now, again, um, some of you don't have a hard time getting to sleep. You have a hard time waking up in the morning. And uh, you can say, Lord, uh, would you please help me to wake up uh, this morning? Again, you got responsibilities to set the alarm on the other side of the, the room so you don't get tempted to crawl back into bed, maybe get a cup of coffee. But you can pray too. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, He awakens me morning by morning. Okay, now the purpose for this uh, rabbit trail is I want to you to begin seeing God in everything. Make use of your insomnia as times of prayer, meditation upon the Scriptures. Many, many times in the Psalms where David was not able to sleep, but he saw God as being involved in that. Anyway, when King Ahasuerus becomes tired of tossing and turning and punching his pillow, what he does is he figures, well, maybe if I get some boring reading... Um, uh, I'll fall asleep, and sometimes uh, we, we do that, get the most boring book we can possibly, I can't think of anything more boring than minutes, and I'll have to admit, I never read minutes trying to get to sleep, I always read something a little bit more exciting, but that's what he did, uh, he asked for, for minutes, God knows just how to move the human heart to do his bidding, continuing in verse 1, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now think of the chances of this servant reading from the right account. Because it's not like they can pull down a book that's got 12 years of minutes in it. You know, they didn't have thin pages like we do today. They wrote on clay tablets. And so there's been 12 years of this king's reign so far. He's got to ask for the right year or just say, hey, bring me some minutes to read. And this guy's got to pull off the shelf the, the right clay tablets, right? And there's only so many clay tablets he can put in his wheelbarrow to take up to the, uh, to the king. What are the odds of that happening? Well, of course, God's not subject to odds, is he? He's the one who makes the odds. Uh, God's touch can also be seen in the king's curious question about what reward to give to Mordecai. As the reader droned along, he comes to an interesting part of the story. And it was interesting because, man, his life was almost taken away by the others. And so it causes the king to rack his brain. Verse 3, then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now here's another perfect touch that comes from God's hands because the servants that he happens to have in his room at this time, they got a pretty good memory of what happened five years before. It could have been a different set of servants or these guys could have had a bad memory. Hmm, I don't know what happened to Mordecai, but they know. God makes sure that they know. And um, it says the king's servants who attended to him said nothing has been done for him. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. Mordecai could easily have become very, very frustrated that immediately after he rescues the king, 
He's done something very, very important. His contributions are completely ignored. And Haman, who's a guy that doesn't deserve anything, he gets exalted way above him. Life is sometimes just not fair. And perhaps you have been discriminated against in your job. Perhaps somebody has been exalted above you and you're far more deserving than them. You've worked far harder than they have. It may appear as if God is not prospering the work of your hands. He's not noticing your work. In fact, it seems as if he didn't even listen to your prayers. What's going on here? One of the themes of this book is the illusion, and it really is an illusion that God is silent and is absent from life when in reality he's orchestrating every detail. It was ultimately in Mordecai's best interests that he was overlooked five years before so that he could be elevated at just the right time. And you've got to learn to have a confidence in God when frustrations come into your lives to say, Lord, I trust you. I know this is good for me. Before we move on to point number three, uh, it's worth noting that Haman had insomnia too. So the king is not the only one who is sleepless in Susa. Uh, Haman is so consumed with getting back, getting even uh, with Mordecai, he can't sleep. He's tossing and turning and punching his pillow as well. And, uh, and, and so you've got to ask the, the, the question, why is Haman in the king's court? He should have been in his own bedroom sleeping. It's nighttime, and the king himself should have been sleeping. Well, if you know the story, you know that Haman has built a gallows for Mordecai, and he's uh, just come to ask the king. He's probably figuring, I can't sleep anyway. I might as well be the first one in queue to talk to the king. And as soon as he gets up, I'm going to ask him to hang Mordecai on, on the gallows. God can turn, though, the hearts of pagans to do his purposes. Even pagans, he controls their hearts. Three times in the book of Exodus, it says that the Lord gave the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians, they're looking, they're saying, what is wrong with our Pharaoh? I don't know. But we don't want these Israelites or his God to be against us. He turned their hearts so they gave silver and gold and jewels and anything that the Israelites wanted. On the other hand, Pharaoh refused to. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand. He turns it whichever way he wills. This is what the Scripture says. God can put just the right touch on the hearts of your adversaries. We serve an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Now, God's strategy involves timing as well. The moment the king is finished saying these words, who does he hear coming into the foyer but Haman? He hears footsteps outside. So verse 4, king said, Oh, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. I mean, talk about incredible, incredible timing. He just happens to be, quote-unquote, happens to be in the right place just as this discussion is taking place. And sometimes we do see very, very obvious providences at work. We can see what good is coming out of them and some of you have got stories that just make your mouth drop open like, wow, that is an incredible story. But the point of this passage is there were a lot of non-incredible things that had to be in sequence in order for this incredible thing to take place. 
Now we, uh, there's so much of history, we can look at it, and you can stare at it for hours and hours, and you can say, I don't see anything providential in that because it's hidden, okay? There are some things that are very, very obvious. Uh, we might have thought when we're in the midst of chapter 2 that God's timing is so messed up, you know? God made King Ahasuerus so preoccupied, so busy with other things that he didn't notice this incredible life-saving thing that Mordecai has done. He's not been promoted. He's not been rewarded. And that was unthinkable because this king always rewarded people very generously, those who served him in gallant ways. Uh, He was a very generous king. So it's just like, how in the world did that happen? What bad luck, people would say. And, of course, we know there is no such thing as luck. It was perfect timing on God's part. And I think, again, we need to get used to saying, Lord, you have stopped me with this detour. I have no idea why my heart's desire was set on going over here. You've stopped me, but I praise you. I thank you. I know that you are in this. Don't get mad at your tire or at God. If you get a flat tire and it makes you late for work and you know the boss is going to chew you out, No, say to the Lord, oh, Lord, this is hard, but I thank you that this is a present wrapped up in beautiful paper, and I trust you, and I I bless you that you are working even this flat tire together for my good. We've got to get used to thinking that way. Now, verse 5 says, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. Now, even this invitation into his bedchamber uh, is remarkable because it's not really protocol. The the king could easily have made Haman wait outside until he brushed his teeth and showered and got dressed. But no, he invites him right in because he wants him to be a part of this conversation. Now, on the other hand, he could have just rewarded Mordecai without ever consulting Haman. But no, Haman has to be a part of this plot for God to be the most glorified. Verse 6, So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? What a setup. The verse goes on. Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now why does the king leave the name Mordecai out of his request? We're not told. It may have been that he just, maybe he thought he'd communicated but hadn't. Uh, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe he's pulling uh, Mordecai, I mean, uh, Haman's chain. He knows what an e- egotistical guy this is, and he thought, yeah, I'm going to fool around with him, yank his chain a bit. We're not told why, but this is just the kind of setup that God wants to have in place. And it's no wonder that Romans 11, you know, ends with just this doxology of praise to God who works all things together for His glory and for our good. And he ends by saying, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And it's my prayer that you would walk away from this weekend with a renewed confidence in your Lord and Savior. Now, point four, God also takes advantage of Haman's fatal flaw. Now, Haman's fatal flaw is pride, right? And God doesn't have to make Haman prideful. He doesn't have to make Haman sin in order to have Haman say the right words. He knows Haman's pride and that Haman will automatically jump to the wrong assumptions. 
Uh, it'll make Haman assume that the king likes him more than anybody else and delights to honor him more than anybody else. By the way, pride is a form of self-worship. It's a form of idolatry. And God declares war on all idolatry, doesn't he? Whether it's in his people or whether it's outside of, of his people. You know, people who are prideful, they just can't imagine that, uh, you know, a case where not everybody else is going to be just as enamored with me, myself, and I as I am <laughs> enamored with me, myself, and I. That's just the most natural thing for a prideful person to be. But uh, God, God makes war against the idolatry and the self-worship of pride. In fact, we saw a, a wonderful uh, presentation yesterday uh, really on a history of pride in the 20th century. I just thought it was wonderfully, wonderfully done 20th century disasters, really, that flowed out of pride. But let's look at verses 7 through 11. These are verses that will set Haman up for everything that he hates. And Haman answered the king, hmm, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Wow. If you could ask Haman to make a list of everything he would hate to do to somebody else, this would be that list. This would be that list. Pride makes us do the exact opposite of the golden rule. And if you're trying to analyze the pride of your own heart, I want you to take some cues uh, from this. Uh, this, this is just a marvelous, marvelous testimony. There are many different ways that you can conquer your pride, and if you're struggling with it, I can give you some suggestions on how to do that because the Lord's had to beat up on my pride over and over again, and I've learned the homework for crucifying your pride. But this is one of those ways that you can do it. Follow the golden rule. Think of the interests of others before your own interests. Be, be quick to give praise to others and, and to not give any praise to yourself. Be quick to lift others up, to serve their interests. And then as soon as your heart feels kind of ornery because they're not doing the same thing to you, I just say, Lord, thank you that you're making this even more difficult because it makes the gift that I'm giving to you more valuable. These are the kind of gifts that we can give to God. This is a way to crucify that pride, engage in the golden rule. But if you do not crucify your pride, be sure that God will do it for you. Uh, he, 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 he hates pride, and he makes sure you're going to be set up for a fall. Now, here's the amazing thing. God's providence was working even through this pride. And you might be thinking, whoa, 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 pastor, you're, you're starting to preach heresy here because God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he ever tempt any man. James, I agree 100%. But God still works through the sinful actions of other people. Think of it this way. Was there any sin that was any greater than the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'd have to say there really wasn't any greater sin than that, and yet that was a sin that was predestined to happen 
It was a sin in which there were hundreds of other details that had to be perfectly in place for Jesus uh, to be able to be crucified. You see, the Jewish leaders, according to the Gospel of John, did not want Jesus crucified during the Passover time. They said, lest there be a riot. They didn't want a riot from the Jews. Let's wait till after the Passover. But Jesus had to be crucified on Nisan 14 at just the right hour. Uh, he had to have that sword pierced through his side, and he had to have his garments being gambled for. And there was a whole series of other things that had to take place. God had to control all of these pagans in order for the crucifixion to happen the way God had predestined for it to happen. So what's going on here? This is something that confuses many people. How can God be totally sovereign over the crucifixion as the, gospel of, as, as the book of Acts says that he was? He predetermined all of these things and yet go ahead and accuse. You are guilty. You're the ones who have taken and crucified the Lord of glory. How is it possible for the Psalms to say God sent Joseph down into Egypt when Genesis says it was these wicked brothers who sold him down into Egypt? How can both be true? Actually, in the last verse of, of Genesis, uh, Joseph says the same thing. He says, for, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God intended Joseph to be sold into Egypt. So how can both be true? God be sovereign and man be responsible for his sins. Well, I, I don't think there's any better illustration than the one that A.W. Pink gave. I don't have any book that I can drop here, but he says, uh, just imagine this is a book. He says, what is... What is the thing that keeps that book from falling to the ground? And the answer is, it is the restraining force or power of my hand. Now, the moment I take away the restraining power of my hand, that book falls to the ground of its own accord. I don't have to smash it down to the ground for it to fall to the ground. Gravity pulls it. It's drawn uh, to the ground. Now, he, he, he points out in the same way, every fallen human is attracted to sin by his sin nature in the same way that this book is attracted to the ground by the forces of gravity. What is keeping humans from being far, far worse than they could be? It's the restraining goodness of God. Now, it's good for us that God restrains the pagans, right? It's the restraining power of God in their lives that keeps them from being as bad as they could be. But Romans 1 says there does come a time in a culture where God gives them up unto a depraved mind. What does it mean to give them up? He says, I'm not going to restrain them anymore. Let's see how fast they go into iniquity. And that's what's beginning to happen in America as we see abortion, murder by the millions that would have been absolutely shocking, sickening people to their hearts. If this had happened a hundred years ago, people would not have believed it. The butchery that goes on in abortion. And now people just, they don't think the second thing about it. They don't resist it. The homosexuality, the bestiality, there's all kinds of things. People, they just don't think, second thing about it. They have been given up unto a depraved mind. Now, here is the thing. Who makes them sin? God's not forcing them to sin. They sin of their own will. 
And yet it is predetermined just as surely when God withdraws his restraining grace. So God can control it by restraining in this area, not restraining in this other area. They don't deserve that restraint. That's a free gift of God. They're not going to burn in hell as long, I mean, as, not as long as hard, as, uh, as if God had not restrained them and they would have had more sins uh, to be punished for. And so there's a sense in which, yeah, God has allowed this and yet God has determined the crucifixion, for example, and, and other sins like that in a way where they intended it for evil. It's their own fault, their own desire, and yet God is working it together for His good. And so that's really what's happening in this story. God is causing the wrath of Haman to praise him. That's what the Psalms say. God is causing the pride of Haman to praise him and to promote his purposes. Now, in verses 7 through 11, it shows a, an ironic twist. Now, we're not told if the king is, you know, making this twist. He may, may not have been, you know, yanking on, on Haman's shame, but God for sure is. This is... This is something that's a stab and a twist. Okay, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And he's probably thinking, Wow, why did I open up my big fat mouth? Uh, this would have been horrible from him. From this point on, this, the life of this wicked man begins to unravel very, very quickly. Now, it's hard enough for Haman's pride to realize that he isn't the man to be honored, but it's even harder, it's an exquisite <laughs> disgrace for him to have the honor he has tailor-made to himself to be conferred upon his enemy, to have to confer that honor himself, to do it immediately, and to do it in a public way, you could not think of a more disgraceful honor. Now, we look at this and we say, praise the Lord. This is wonderful. This is awesome. But here is the warning I want to give to you. If you've got pride in your heart, God's setting you up for exactly the same thing. I want this image in, Ex in Esther chapter 6 to burn into your memory and make you hate your pride. It is your mortal enemy. And the reason God is going to do this for you is He hates pride. He resists the proud, but He lifts up the humble. He casts down the proud and, 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 um, and gives more grace uh, to the humble. So we have got to crucify and put under the blood of Christ any pride that is in our heart because God is on a warpath against the pride that is in us. And he knows how to bring these ironic twists into your life. If you're not willing to humble yourself on yourself, on your own, it may not be exactly the same way, but you're going to have the shame. You're going to have the disgrace. And so it's much, much better to, to, to begin to expose deliberately the areas in your life so that you are crucifying that pride. Go to people and tell them things about your life you wouldn't want them ordinarily. You know, you have to, do have to be selective on this and how you do it. There's some ways that are not appropriate, but where you can tell a person uh, that, you know, maybe you're prideful in, in how good a grades, uh, you know, you get in school. Well, actually, most of you are homeschoolers, so you probably don't get grades, right? Uh, what are some other things you could expose yourselves on? But you could just say, you know, this is an area that I have struggled with for a long time, and I want you to pray for me. 
I've been struggling with whatever it might be. Maybe I've been struggling with pornography. And would you be an accountability partner for me? There's three times I've fallen this past week. I don't want to ever fall again. And I'm bound and determined to get rid of this. And I know I'm not going to be able to do it by myself. So I want to crucify my pride. This is hard for me to admit to you. You're telling this other person. There may be many ways in which you can crucify your pride. But if you don't, God will. And it'll be much more painful if God does it than if you do it. Now, finally, have I skipped anything here? Nope. Finally, God's strategy can be seen in the fact that his loyal friends, who had only days before been enthusiastically encouraging him, yeah, go build that gallows, who had stroked his pride, they're the first ones to turn on him. It was an amazing, amazing thing. Okay, verse 13. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men, and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks a lot for telling me the obvious, guys. <laughs> Maybe what he's thinking. Like, I really needed to hear that. Thanks for rubbing the salt in the wounds. But he really didn't have time to argue with them. I'm sure he was wishing he could take down those gallows just in case the king might not have heard, might not find out about it, but he can't. Here's the messengers, quickly ready to escort him to the banquet. God won't let him get out of this gracefully so he can save his pride. No, uh, it's going to be more than his pride that's going to suffer here. Because verse 14 says, While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had, had prepared. What an incredible reversal. But it all came about because the king couldn't sleep and Haman couldn't sleep. The destiny of the nation was determined by two sleepless men, sleepless in Susa. I think it's a fun uh, story all in its own right, but I do want to end with three more applications. First of all, this, this chapter reflects the story of each one of our lives. The blending of our own wills with God's will is sometimes inscrutable. In other words, we just don't understand how it works. That's why I said earlier that, uh, that we can't always write providential history. We look at history and, okay, I can see God's providences, His purposes. I can give a theological interpretation. Here's some portions of history. It's inscrutable. I don't know what to do with that. And sometimes that's the case in our lives. Sometimes... Things in our lives seem like just a bunch of random events, and yet we can be assured by the Scripture God is at the center of that story. How did you meet your spouse? Maybe it was a coincidental meeting. And uh, for others, maybe it was very planned out, but no matter how silent God may have appeared to be, He was in the middle of your story. Now, Kathy and I met at uh, Covenant College in Tennessee. I came from... Canada, she came from Omaha, and we only crossed paths for a short time in that school. And uh, I was slowed down for quite a period of time. I really wanted to get married when I was up in Canada, and there was just nobody that I felt the Lord uh, would, would have me to marry. I wanted to get a house, and, and then I wanted to go to school, but Covenant College, wow, was it expensive, and I had to work to save up money for a long time. God slowed me down for six 
years because he knew that our paths would have to cross at a given time. Now, I could have been very, in fact, actually I have to confess, I was very frustrated. And I shouldn't have been. I should have been, thank you, Lord, that uh, you're not opening the door for me to get married at this time because you've got purposes. I need to grow up. There's many things that need to happen before I meet Kathy. But it was worth the wait. How were you converted? For some of you, it may have seemed like a totally chance event. Maybe you were flipping through the channels on the radio station and there was a phrase that came through from some preacher that struck to your heart, and I've heard this happen to a number of people, struck to your heart, and you couldn't turn off the radio. And he was preaching and you got converted by accident. No, 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 no. There is no such thing as accidents in God's plan. Now, for some of you, you've grown up in a Christian home all your lives. There's never been a time when you have not known and loved the Lord and trusted in the sufficiency of His atonement and believed in justification through the imputed righteousness of Christ, you know, and your sins being imputed to Him. You've never been a time when you have not trusted Him. Let me tell you something. God was at the center of that as well. Another lesson is that often God's path to joy leads through the swamps of difficulty and sorrow. Now, some of you have recognized this for quite some time. I mean, Dan, you know, his dad died. He had to go down, and uh, he's not able to be back with us because uh, uh, relatives weren't able to come in time. He, had, he has to stay through Wednesday. And, uh, you know, he, he's shook up about that. And some of the rest of you have swamps of misery that you're going through and praise God you have been learning to thank God in the middle of the swamp not just way later when you find out what the purposes of God were you're learning to thank God in the middle of those swamps this trial may be the very vehicle that will usher you into joy and fulfillment and so don't despise the trials God brings do not despise the frustrations he brings now learn to change them Because remember, we've got to be responsible. Uh, There may be things God wants you to do. So be responsible. But when there's nothing you can do, learn to submit to God's providences with grace and with joy. Now, one last application is that history itself has a chiasm just like this book does, like the outline there. God has not chosen to reverse history at the second coming, at the end of time. This is what many people are looking forward to. But the chiasm's in the middle, right? The the heart. God has chosen to reverse history at the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the heart. That's the center of the chiasm of all of human history. And a lot of people just don't buy into that. They think history is going to be reversed at the second coming. That's the time when there's going to be the bells and the whistles and everything flashing fireworks is going to go off. Let me tell you something. There wasn't a lot happening. Yeah, there was three hours of darkness. There wasn't a lot, though, that was happening at the cross. Up to that time, there had been millions of deaths. There's been billions of deaths since then. There have been lots of other crucifixions. A lot of people didn't know what this crucifixion was about. They didn't even know what had happened. In China, nobody knew that the crucifixion of Christ had happened. It was obscure, just like Jesus' life in many ways was obscure, and yet God has chosen for His strength to arise out of weakness, out of obscurity. He's not the one that's telling us, 
Look to the future. You know, that's the thing. He tells us, look to the cross and let everything in life flow from the cross because I guarantee you, based upon my eschatology, <laughs> that the cross of Jesus Christ has reversed everything. It's the cross that's going to transform nations and make the Great Commission achievable. That the nations themselves will be discipled, Christian nations. It's the cross that reverses history, not the second coming that reverses history. And I tell you, when we, when we at the end of our, uh, when we're up in heaven, if God gives us a glimpse of the fabric of life, we're going to say, Lord, you are so amazing. You are so awesome that you bring the spectacular out of the ordinary. Brothers and sisters, I want you to begin doing the same thing in the ordinary in your lives today. Praise Him. See His life at work in your life and that He will bring the spectacular out of your ordinary. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the testimony of Esther chapter 6. Father, it is our desire that we would have faith to see the spectacular in the ordinary that we would have faith to be willing to even to glory as the one uh, play yesterday on the martyrs showed, to be, to be willing to glory at being able to lay down our lives in martyrdom if it takes that so that Christ would be exalted. Father, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do all to your glory. And yet we find so much in our lives that blinds us to your providence, blinds us to your good purposes, blinds us <laughs> to the glory that we really ought to be embracing, the glory of the cross. Father, crucify the pride that is in us. Tear down any strongholds, any high things that have exalted themselves against the knowledge of you. And I pray that you truly would be exalted in each life here and we would find that joy indescribable and full of glory. Not seeking our own, but finding joy in seeking you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.